Welcome back to Cinema Adventure, a movie podcast where every week my wonderful co-host Blake and I sit down to discuss a film. Blake, you chose the film this week. I did. What are we talking about? We're talking about the 1945 classic Mildred Pierce, directed by Michael Curtiz and starring the indelible Joan Crawford. Indelible is a, a two or three dollar word, I'd say. Yeah, no, it's it's not. I know it's you have to use it when it's very appropriate, but truly, Joan Crawford deserves it. She really does carry this film. She acting wise, she does a very She's good fantastic. job. I assume you've seen this movie before. Yeah, I've seen since it. you wanted to talk about it. I've seen it. it about three times. Weirdly, I always feel like it's kind of casually like it'll just be like, oh, just let me reacquaint myself. I mean, I do like it a lot. I don't know if it's like my favorite movie or anything, but I don't know. Just every once in a while, gotta freshen up. It's a very pivotal moment in uh, cinema history for sure. This may be a first for me really? to say on the podcast that I have actually seen this movie before. Oh, really? Yes, Aiden, I have. I did not know that. This is my second watching of Mildred Pierce. Wow, when was the first time? The first time was two years ago. I watched it for a film history class. Oh, there you go. And let me tell you, I enjoyed it a heck of a lot more when it wasn't in the context of a film history class. That's true. Things become infinitely less fun when they're assigned. There's an art to teaching a film class. So what about this movie sticks with you so much that you want to talk about it again? I don't even know if it's necessarily like the movie itself sticks with me. I just think it is a very important movie. I think it's a touchstone in the Hollywood Golden Age. It's kind of the Joan Crawford movie. I think it is the quintessential women's film, which was kind of a subgenre that was popular in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And I also think it's one of the definitive film noir movies. So for me, it just kind of encompasses a lot of different things. And it's just like a very important hallmark to me. Tell me about women's film in the 30s and 40s. I have no um, idea what that means. So they, basically they were movies like this kind of women-centric um, that focused on what women of the air were dealing with, basically. So they would usually focus on characters similar to Mildred Pierce, women who were trying to balance professional, personal lives. Usually a lot of them were like women of a certain age. So like Joan Crawford was a really popular women's picture star. So was Betty Davis, Barbara Stanwyck. But yeah, this is a very quintessential one. They're like, I guess, specifically made for women kind of in the same way that like romantic comedies in the 90s kind of were with like Meg Ryan or something. It's just like a very demographic specific kind of thing. But usually they were kind of just soap operas, melodramas, those kinds of things. So things that appealed more to women of the era, I guess. But, I mean, it has been understandably criticized for being very... Because you don't say, like, a man's film, necessarily. Right. So, like, that was brought up by, like, the film critic Janine Basinger, who, even though they were, like, trying to empower women and show that they could balance all these different things about their lives, it still reinforced, like, conventional values and, above all, like, exemplified this idea that women could only find happiness through love and marriage and motherhood rather than, like, a satisfying career, which I think... It's kind of featured in Mildred Pierce. It's definitely an interesting genre. So this is the second film on the podcast we've discussed mm -hmm. that was directed by Michael Curtiz. The other one we talked about was White Christmas. You know, I didn't, I made the connection then, but for some reason I didn't make the connection until I sat down and popped it in and went, Michael Curtiz, that name looks mm -hmm. very familiar. This guy directed Casablanca and a bunch of very important historical film. Oh, totally. Like, just even looking, like, in the 1940s, just within, like, a 10-year span, he made, like, 21 movies, which is... 21 movies in 10 yeah. years? Yeah, it's insane. And a lot of them are very high quality, too. I mean, he... I would kind of compare him to someone like Howard Hawks. Like, he was kind of a shapeshifter. He could really do any kind of movie. I think he was mostly, like, a director for hire. He wasn't, like, an Alfred Hitchcock, where he was, like, a total auteur or anything. But he was definitely one of the, like, dependable studio directors who could make quality projects 
really easily for the most part. This is definitely one of his best movies, I think. Like looking through his filmography, like there are like a pretty select few of like actual like big classics, and this is certainly one of them. And you feel it too. There is oh, totally. there is power behind this this film. There's a lot. I, I think of power. there's a lot of you. I don't know if I would say that there's a lot that I can look to in this film that was that I see referenced a lot in film now or things that were inspired by it, although I, I could be wrong, but it feels historically significant in some oh, way. certainly. Because it does many things. One of them was the fact that it did feature... Because, I mean, movies in general, as the years have shown, like there is kind of this fetishization of youth. And so most, you know, leading actresses popular during that era, or even now, like they're predominantly like in their 20s and very young. Joan Crawford at this time was 40 years old. I think this is movies kind of considered her comeback, but um, she'd been one of the top stars in her 20s throughout the 1930s. And then like in 1937, she started having all these box office bombs basically. And so from like 1937 to like when this movie was made, 1945, she didn't really have any hits. She was in like The Women, which was a 1939 comedy, but she was only supporting. Before this movie came out, like her career was basically over. And so she really had to fight for this role. And ultimately, I mean, she won the Oscar for it, obviously. And after that, she saw this huge career resurgence that redefined her as a dependable lead in these really powerful soap opera kinds of movies. So she was one of the first actresses that proves that you could be above 40 and still be making really high-quality movies. So that was certainly culturally significant. And it also, being post-war, the movie itself, is it in 1945 or is it earlier than that? I kind of thought it was... It's kind of hard to tell because yeah. the time jumps. Mm-hmm. I'd say it probably is supposed to be contemporary. Yeah. During it, the beginning when they're in the police station and then the flashback is, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, maybe 19... I think the book that the movie is based on yeah. takes place in 41, 42. Yeah, somewhere around there. But I don't think it's super relevant. Yeah, yeah. But, like, yeah, in addition to being so pivotal to Joan Crawford's career, I mean, there had been other actresses at the time that had been above 40 and making really great movies like Greer Garson or Gene Arthur or... Rosalind Russell eventually did that kind of thing, but Joan Crawford was really like the first big movie star that was still considered like very sexy and independent and could be really successful. But in addition to that, this was one of the first movies that really took seriously a woman of a certain age, you know, wanting to pursue a romantic life, wanting to pursue her professional interests. And so it was really a very forward-thinking portrait of a woman at the time. I think it obviously has aged a lot now, but considering what was being portrayed in movies like seven decades ago, like it was pretty revolutionary for the most part. You can definitely, I think you can see that it does. You don't see a lot of movies around that time that are comparable in the way they portray their women. You know, it's funny, just speaking of history and just kind of the time period of the film, Mm -hmm. you see a a few times in the film when they're making alcoholic beverages, which is a lot, they have these bottles of seltzer water that they just Mm -hmm. have sitting out that they have, it looks like a little tiny fire hydrant that they just squeeze on. I laughed and pointed at the screen when I was watching Uh and I saw that because I was just listening to this really interesting audio piece and there's a video that went along with it that talks all about seltzer and seltzer water and you know back in the day they used to have a person called a seltzer man who would Mm. deliver (laughs) bottles of seltzer water like a milkman would. really yeah so this whole story that i was listening to is all about this guy i think he's in new jersey and he's the last he's like the last seltzer man wow and it's all about how he uses these (laughs) antique bottles that are up to 90 years old and he's still delivering them and he cleans them and he makes a seltzer himself and he's like oh yeah my father was a seltzer man my grandfather was a seltzer man 
it's a wild video, but huh. it was a cool little bit of history, you know? Yeah, super cool. So yeah, I, I'll link I'll link that story in you our description it. if you want totally. that little bit of history to go along with Mildred Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> that was very interesting. Yeah, because it is, I mean, it does, this movie, it's weird because it feels like at once, like super modern and very of its time at the same time. Like it's, it's really weird, because I feel like some movies are very obviously dated and this one is dated, but at the same time you can tell that it's almost not of its era in a way. Like, it's, I don't know if you felt the same way when you watched it, but I don't know. I, I like, have that impression. I think you're supposed to have the impression that Mildred is this independent woman who can divorce her husband and open a restaurant and be successful, but then she's totally dragged around by everybody. Exactly. And she never really stands up for herself. And when she does, she collapses and she can't continue yeah. with it. So. Her horrible daughter, Vita, tells her that she's, you know, peasant and that she's poor and she has to work for her money and how disgusting that is. And Mildred's reaction is to slap her, yeah. right? But then she's all apologetic and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I promised myself I would never do that. So you feel terrible for her because yeah. clearly she wants to be doing the right thing and her whole goal is to be self-supporting and when she accomplishes these goals she just she has her face spat in i guess we should give like a small plot summary the movie begins with we see a man get shot we don't see who shot him but he just mutters the word mildred so we go back we kind of are led to assume that the mildred pierce of the title is the one who did it but not really given a lot more information besides that and then so we go back to a few years prior to what happened in this scene and we see like this mildred pierce character she has two daughters but we see her kind of grow through the years basically she divorces her husband the younger daughter dies then she starts to run her own successful restaurant but all the while her older daughter vita is kind of a spoiled brat basically and really takes it upon herself to remind her mom that she's like unsatisfied and she really goes out of her way to manipulate her and make her feel bad. So yeah, we basically kind of just see almost a, not like a rise and fall sort of story, but you do see this rise and then a potential fall caused by this fragmented relationship between Mildred and her oldest daughter. This has a pretty unconventional plot structure. So it starts out, like you said, with a murder. We mm -hmm. don't know who did the murder. Then there's some stuff where somebody's trying to be framed for a murder, and then you end up in a police station, and the police ask Mildred, what's the story here? And she's... Then you get the flashback, and you get the yeah. whole story. Then the story ramps up from the flashback to the current time mm -hmm. when the murder occurs, and throughout you flash back forward to the police station maybe yeah. two or three times, and then you get your resolution at the end, and you there's a twist, of course, and... There's mm -hmm. a fun reveal, right? No, it's it's, very it's unconventional. It's it's not linear. No, it's not linear at all. In the movie itself, it's I mean, it is set in California, but it is really defined by this very inky, murky cinematography that makes this kind of I mean, relatively I mean, when you think of California, you think of like, you know, sun and warmth, whatever. But here it's kind of portrayed as this claustrophobic, almost gothic sort of atmosphere that really mirrors how trapped she feels in her life like even though she is making such big steps like she's consistently kind of almost put in a, a psychological prison of sorts because of how she's never able to please her older daughter which that i would say that drives the movie is i mean you have all this stuff about mildred pierce running her successful restaurant she kind of tries to pursue like a romance with this kind of slime ball played by Zachary Scott. So you get all these other dimensions, but for the most part, the movie is about her relationship with her daughter Vito, who's played by Anne Blith, 
who is incredible in this movie. I, it's very odd the way it feels. It feels very trapped and almost nightmarish for the most part. The big scary shadows that you see all over the place definitely add to that feeling. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole noir aesthetic of the movie just draws out those heightened emotions and mm. the tense feelings in the room you always get. There's scenes where the only thing you see of a person is their shadow just moving yeah. like a shadow puppet on a wall. And it's usually the bad characters yeah. or a good character who's just done mm-hmm. a bad thing. Yeah. No, definitely. It's very, it's great to look at. And the, the, the camera in general, like I've noticed this consistently throughout Crawford's career, but I mean, the camera loves her. I mean, she, there's like, I don't know if there's some weird filter these camera uses, but I mean, I feel like she's just like, she's almost like a painting, like watching her, especially like in close up. Like, I don't feel like you necessarily see actresses photograph this way anymore, but I mean, it is, I think that's one of the things that's really fun about the Hollywood golden age and black and white cinematography in general is these actresses and actors they kind of become almost godlike in the way they look they glow I mean, they totally they glow unreal. yeah the black and white photography done in this film is extremely high contrast oh yeah so i would assume that joan crawford is very pale to begin with but yeah. the high contrast of photography that they were using really yeah. draws that out and everybody who is white to begin with is very white, like paper white. Yeah, no, I mean, it looks incredible. I do wonder, because, I mean, she didn't really make that many, like, color movies. In her career, I mean, she made, like, Johnny Guitar, but I'm, like, really pressed to think of technical movies she was in. I don't feel like I really even know what Joan Crawford looks like when she's not black and white and just godly. I mean, she has these huge cheekbones, these very big, glossy lips, and she just looks great on camera in general. We've been gushing about how good-looking this movie is. I think we should talk about some of the pitfalls that this film falls into. Before we get into some of the racially insensitive stuff, Uh I kind of want to talk about another thing related to structure. I really, really strongly dislike the voiceover used in this movie. Yeah, I feel like voiceovers are very rarely... I very rarely like them in general. I just think it takes away a certain sort of subtlety. Like, I think so many things could be conveyed... Because I feel like Joan Crawford is a strong enough actress to where she could convey her emotions with her face. I mean, if you watch her movie Sudden Fear, there's this whole scene where she's just acting with facial expressions and body movements. And it's, you know, the movie's centerpiece, so clearly she's capable of that. So I totally agree. Like, I think it is frustrating that they use the voiceover. Because I think it is kind of an obvious move as well. And the thing is, is that the information being conveyed is always something that we're also seeing. So it yeah. just feels redundant. There's a scene where she's lamenting something about paperwork and there's some some tax thing and mm. you just see her looking through the bills and all the paperwork and she just you <laughs> see shots of her hands and then you see shots of her face mm. and she just looks really distressed and you yeah. already get that fact that this restaurant business is taxing and it's rough mm. and we don't really taxing good pun but <laughs> but you don't you don't need the voiceover of her saying the restaurant business was tough it was very taxing you know it's just kind <laughs> of it's strong. a little it's a little too much and yeah. then most of the other times it's used it just kind of feels like it's there to tell you that some time has passed when i think the same thing could be accomplished with either context or even a little small title card in the corner of the screen yeah. that says August or yeah, September. So, you know, some months have passed. Yeah. I feel like voiceovers don't work a lot in general. The movie the movie in general, like, I know that it is based off the book, but I always feel, like, structurally, I do think, like, the flashback is used interestingly, but just the way the story is structured is kind of odd to me because I really, because it really downplays, I think, all the great things and, like, the forward-thinking things that Mildred Pierce is doing, and it really emphasizes the mother-daughter relationship that I feel like is kind of... It's very well acted by Crawford and Blith. Like, I really... They're... I wouldn't... 
say they have like chemistry necessarily, obviously, because their relationship is so antagonistic. But they play off each other so well. But at the same time, like you just feel like it's so overwrought. And I feel like it could have just been kind of simply stated that like her daughter sucks, kind of. But like the movie really amps that up, and it's like, but what about all of Pierce's independence? Like it's very just kind of part of it. But like the movie ends up becoming about this relationship that I feel like isn't super well defined in the first place. Should we talk about? Lottie, the maid. Yeah. So I'm I'm now looking through just information. I'm just looking at kind of the IMDb page. It says here that she's uncredited, the actress. Butterfly, really? Butterfly McQueen, it says uncredited. Hmm. I'd say it's a, it's a pretty horrible racist caricature. No, the, that's the problem with a lot of these movies is most people of color are put into roles where they're playing like maids or butlers. And in this case, Butterfly McQueen is one of Joan Crawford's, like, servants, basically. And she has this very high-pitched voice, and it's kind of made almost specifically to laugh at or almost like a punchline, and not even like a we're laughing with her kind of thing, but it's like, oh, like, her voice is funny, and she's just, like, the dumb maid, and it's very... It definitely, like, takes you out of it a little bit. This movie has this very, like, evocative, interesting atmosphere, but then you have kind of this racist stereotype that really is insensitively portrayed. And you had mentioned earlier that, like, McQueen later on, like, said how she really resented how she was portrayed in a lot of these movies. And you can see why, for the most part. Yeah, and she played a maid in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. And I was reading a story about her. Apparently, she seems like a wonderful person in real life. Yeah. She she attended some film festival with a restoration uh-huh. of Gone with the Wind years and years and years later, and she agreed to appear. And she you know, told the audience, you know, I resented having to play this character, but I've been told by people that I was opening doors, but it didn't feel like that to me at the mm. time. But then apparently, she, she, apparently she's a very good storyteller, and she uh-huh. just won the audience over and just told them a bunch of stories from just her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, there's there's another scene in this film where there's some party going on and she's speaking with another maid and they have this back and forth about, oh, which wine should we grab for them? And they don't seem to understand, uh, in quotations, they don't understand that the older wine would be the more refined, better wine that they should open. They're mm. like, oh, well, this one's from 1945 and that one's from 1944, yeah. so the 1945 must be the better one. Mm. And I just... I was so frustrated by that. That was so frustrating. And it's, you wouldn't really have um, African-American actors even really be taken seriously for still like another decade. I think that kind of happened when like Dorothy Dandridge and Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier all rose to fame. But I mean, it still took a really long time for Hollywood to stop emphasizing these kind of racist characters. I guess, I mean, like Anime Wong was a really popular like woman of color in the 30s who was in a lot of hit movies. But at the same time, she was kind of featured as kind of this exotic woman who was never, she was kind of always just kind of this weird caricature always. She was never really put in roles that were three-dimensional. So I think, yeah, this is like a very good encapsulation of Hollywood's racist past, which is, you know, it's prevalent in a lot of these movies. So We talked a little bit before we started recording about how, you know, there's elements of this film that hold up incredibly well and mm-hmm. make you say, wow, like that still looks really good or this is still, yeah. this still feels fresh and like something that you don't even see in movies very much now, but it feels right. Yeah. But then there's other bits that really drag it down. It's true. Like really, really significantly, especially this. Yeah, I know this is definitely one for sure. Should we yeah. lighten up a little bit? <laughs> sure. Like I think it's time for some fun facts. Oh, is it? I'm very excited. I have many today. There's a lot of fun behind the scenes stuff. 
me turn this page very loudly. It's like an ASMR video. Um, so this was, unsurprisingly, Joan Crawford's favorite movie that she ever made, which it's understandable because, I mean, it was a movie that won her an Oscar. It was her comeback. I don't, I honestly don't know if her career would have recovered without this movie. I mean, she hadn't had a hit movie in like a decade. So, you know, understandable. Originally, she was not sought after for the role of Mildred Pierce. Michael Curtiz, first of all, didn't want her because she had kind of this reputation of being difficult, which was exaggerated. Like, she could be kind of a diva, but it wasn't that bad. People would just, because she was kind of a has-been, they really would just overemphasize it. So originally, like, there was a ton of actresses who would have just, like, been welcomed in. Anyway, like, Joan Fontaine and Myrna Loy, Rosalind Russell, they were all considered at one point, but the problem was is a lot of these actresses were too vain to admit that they could be the mother to a 17-year-old. And so Joan Crawford, like, knew this was the role of a lifetime. She's like, I don't care. I mean, Curtis didn't want her because, I mean, obviously difficult, and then, you know, he had all these other actresses in mind, so she... Even though she was like a major star still, she went and did a screen test anyway. And I guess through that convinced Curtiz that she would be right for the part because she cared about it so much. So she really, really had to fight for this. What else? Oh, and then according to Anne Blith, who played the daughter, Joan Crawford actually like instructed her to slap her in that kind of like climactic fight scene they have. But in general, they got along really well. And Blith said that Crawford was really, really kind and was really helpful to helping her develop as an actress. So she had really good experiences in that way. So Joan Crawford as well, she was nominated and obviously won the Oscar, but she didn't think she was gonna win. So she like stayed home. She also had pneumonia, so that was like, a good reason to stay. But then I guess like it later came out that like her daughter said that she was just like faking her illness for attention. So then when she did, when like, I guess press came to her house and she kind of came out in this really nice negligee and acted so humbled that she won, which is a great little tidbit. The film's release was also held back until like September 1945 because studio heads figured that it would find a more sympathetic audience in a post-war atmosphere after kind of that brief sort of women's liberation that happened when all the men went to war and they had to work in factories. They felt like it would develop a better audience that way. After seeing the movie, the author of Mildred Pierce, the novel, James M. Kane, sent Joan Crawford a signed first edition of the original and said, and told her like that she really brought his character to life and it was exactly what he hoped it was going to be. That's so is, good. It's really nice. Even though the movie doesn't sound like it was super faithful to his book. like Not at, at least, all. Yeah, so at least she made a really big impression. Wow, that's pretty excellent because there was no murder in the book. Yeah, no, they really... <laughs> really changed it so at least there's that for him yeah this movie was really really successful when it came out it made up more than half of warner brothers's profits from uh 1946 i believe that yeah and i guess crawford as well kind of mirrored mildred pierce in a few ways just because she also supported herself um, as a waitress and a saleswoman before she had achieved major success as an actress. Shirley Temple was originally considered for vita pierce i'm very glad she was not cast because she would not have been believable for not the older daughter? Yeah, for Vita. There's oh, wow. just no way. I mean, I think Shirley Temple's really good, but I don't think she's a strong enough actress to be this villainous sort of character. So that was a good choice. When filming began, Curtis, like consistently made fun of Joan Crawford because Joan Crawford, is she was notorious for putting shoulder pads in most of what she wore because she thought it made her look grander. I don't know what it was. So he like made fun of her a lot. And I guess they got in a lot of fights in general because she would try to wear like very tight clothing that like accentuated her body and tried to be like more glamorous basically. And so they consistently would get in these like fights because they had disagreements over how she would look on screen. But I guess like they eventually, they kind of grew close. And so at the end, like Crawford presented him with like this gif of shoulder pads all wrapped up. So <laughs> 
her outfits are always so angular in in this film. She looks like she could be she one of the is. characters in Blade Runner. Yeah, no, she's all. Yeah, she looks a lot like Sean Young's character in Blade yeah, Runner. Yeah, I can't remember her name either. Yeah, no, but yeah, Joan Crawford is when I think of her, it is like all angles because her face is so angular with her huge cheekbones, and then she has always these very angled clothes. She almost is just a walking character. Like you see caricatures of her, and it's very like yes, those are all exactly how she looks. <laughs> very accurate. It's very accurate, even if it's not. <laughs> But yeah, those are my fun facts for today. Hey, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Wonderful. I tried. Very good. <laughs> Very good fun facts. Yeah. I'm curious about your opinion on this because I, I frantically wrote this down later today after <laughs> I watched it last night. And yeah. I, I was just thinking about the characters and the arcs that they go through. Yeah. And I don't think any of the characters really change. No. At all. They really don't change. They're. I think what's interesting about this movie is they all are really one note, but I think because the dialogue is very stylized and quick, like, it almost makes up for the fact that, like, they don't really do a lot. Because it is very, like, one note, like, uh, Mildred Pierce is kind of this codependent who is seeking approval for someone who is never going to give her approval. And then Vita is just a spoiled brat who wants to make her mom feel bad all the time. And then Zachary Scott's this gross cat. Jack Harson's a womanizer. Eve Arden's, like, the snappy friend and they never really they never go anywhere from there yeah but i think i feel like they're all such interesting characters that i kind of excuse it for the most part and interesting i think in general because i go in with the expectation that it is going to be a soap opera like i don't necessarily expect these big grand character arcs i think i just kind of want major drama and these very breathless kind of one-on-one exchanges interesting yeah what about the ending what do you think about the ending of the film where Vita goes to prison for killing mm. the man from the beginning. <laughs> and then Joan Crawford and her ex-husband go away together, and it looks like they're going to get back together. Yeah, I don't... It, I guess it kind of makes sense, because, I mean, at the time, like, Hollywood in general, almost because of the Hayes Code, like, most movies were kind of required to almost end happily. And have the bad guy get what was coming. Yeah, the bad guy get what was coming, and then, like, have some kind of, like, optimistic sort of thing. So I... I feel like for me it kind of works, but it also like makes me mad because I, I think in general, Bruce Banner who plays the husband she leaves at the beginning and then gets back together with the His name's end. actually Bruce Banner. Bruce Bennett, sorry. Oh, I was gonna say, so he's close. the Incredible Hulk. I think I actually like wrote that at, like when I was writing the review, I wrote Banner like the whole time and then I was like, wait a minute, that's not correct. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's like frustrating because I feel like he's the only man that like kind of treats her respectfully and she leaves him and then these other men who are gross like she'll kind of give her so much more time and it's like really so it's like i guess it's frustrating that she kind of takes him for granted and then it's like oh i guess we'll get back together but i don't know i don't know if i wouldn't say that she takes him for granted because he's cheating on her at the beginning of the film that's true and she she knows and she confronts him about it and then when she says i want to open a restaurant and i can't do that very well if i'm still married to you i need a divorce and then he's like i'm gonna fight you to the bitter end it's (laughs) like yo dog you were cheating on her of course she wants to get away from you no that's true so it rubs me the wrong i mean of course all the reasons you just said make sense why it ends this way yeah i think if this film were made today it would definitely end with, with, her just, with her just going off probably to another state to start a new restaurant by herself and yeah. not depend on anybody. Yeah, or like is, completely renounce, I don't know, <laughs> male company probably. Yeah, no, I'm curious how, yeah, because I feel like if there was like a modern adaptation set in modern times, like I do wonder how it would play out. But I also do wonder how, because there was the um, 2011 like miniseries adaptation oh, yeah. by Todd Haynes with like Kate Winslet as Mildred Pierce. So I am curious how that 
compares because I know it is a lot more faithful and I had read that it kind of resembles like I a lot of the actors use kind of the Marlon Brando style of acting like it's very like this is very like presentationally styled acting whereas like that one is a lot more raw and kind of um, emotionally big so I'd be curious to see how they're different because I heard I heard it's really good and I mean I think it won a lot of Emmys when it came out so it's got to be good. Sardines. How did you feel too about because I really love, I mean, it's super, super over the top, but I love the scene kind of toward the end where Mildred and Vita get in this big blowout and like Mildred calls her like cheap and horrible and there's like this big slap and like that scene is so overwrought, but it's like my favorite in the whole movie. It's just so well acted. That scene's good. Yeah. But I think it comes in second for me. Really? In terms What's of your first? In, in terms <laughs> of the one, one-on-one daughter-mother uh-huh. argument scenes. It's after the murder is committed, after Vita kills the man, uh-huh. and Mildred goes over to the telephone, calls the police. Oh, Vita yeah, yeah. holds onto her arm, and she's like, no, please, mother, please don't. Don't call the police. Don't Vita send me to jail, blah, 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 Yeah. God, she <laughs> sucks. <her. laughs> and, and you see the inner conflict <laughs> on the face yeah. of Joan Crawford, and it's so good. Yeah, that's Because true. you can tell how badly she just wants the police to come and take her daughter to jail so she doesn't have to deal with her anymore. But then she doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't let that happen. Mm-hmm. It happens anyway when the when the detectives trick her into admitting, you know, that yeah. she murdered the man. But it plays out so well. Yeah. No, they're so good. That's the thing is, like, I think I said earlier, like, I don't feel like the relationship is very... The whole, like, toxic relationship is just so, I feel like, one note and kind of... I don't know. It's never convincing to me, but it's so... Blith and Crawford are just so electric when they're together that, like, I kind of excuse it anyway for the, for most of the movie. Like, that, that big fight that they have with, like, the slap and everything, like, it's silly, but it also is just very emotionally powerful. And I think Blith is just amazing in this movie. She was only 16 during filming, and she... Her acting prowess is incredible. And it's it's odd to me. I mean, she... She did, like, make some more, like, I think financially successful movies, but she never really had a role that she could chew on as much. And so it is kind of disappointing to me that she didn't become bigger because I feel like she really would have made it big if she had been in more, like, high-quality sorts of women's pictures. The only thing I've seen her in, I think, besides, is she's, like, in a Twilight Zone episode where she plays this, like, actress who is actually, like, an Egyptian goddess or something who she, like is eternally young by, like, sucking the life out of people. And so it's like, she's almost like female Keanu Reeves or something, just never ages, just continues to look young and have a good career, and no one knows why she looks so young, and that's the reason why. Because wow. she's just sucking life. So You know, it's interesting that, that you like the character of Vita so yeah. much. I was reading a review last night, or rather this morning, about that came out shortly after the film came out. Uh-huh. It came out in October of... Uh, 1945, uh-huh. and the reviewer complains that there's no reason for Vita to be as evil as she is. I mean, it's true. It is true, and I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a criticism that you you expect to know why a character turns evil, and there's really no she's motivation. Just, she's just an asshole. That's just kind of. <laughs> that's just the she's way just it is. She's just awful. She's but, so mean. That's a huge criticism that this reviewer gives. I'll link this. Is it Bosley Crowther? It is not. It is Dang it. Manny Farber. See, I honestly, anytime I hear like a review of a movie that just came out and it's like the 40s, I'm like, it's Bosley Crowther in my mind because he's like, I feel like he was really like the main. There wasn't that many movie critics back then, and like he was like the big head honcho. I guess I had like read a YouTube comment that 
Vita's just a narcissist and Mildred's the classic codependent. So I think, I guess that makes sense, but even then, like, it's just not convincing. Especially you see how much uh, Mildred does for her, and it's like, why is she so awful? Like, it's just, it's very frustrating in general. Especially because so much of what Mildred does is so admirable, but then she's, like, tethered down by this stupid <laughs> teenage daughter, and it's like, why does she have to care so much? Yeah. The reason they give in the film is just because she's spoiled. She's really. spoiled. It's I think that she's spoiled. Yeah. Well, I mean, she is spoiled because I mean, it is because like Mildred, like her younger daughter dies, and because she's divorced, she doesn't want Vita to feel like abandoned or like that the family's going to suffer because of the younger daughter's death. Like she's like, just because all these things happen, it doesn't mean that like you're going to have a bad life necessarily, which is understandable. But I also don't. The way it's portrayed is just, like, too, it's too much. It raises a really interesting question, I think, about nature versus nurture. Because uh-huh. the younger daughter, Kay, is this tomboyish girl who wears overalls and plaid, and she uh-huh. just gets dirty and plays football with all the boys <laughs> in the street. And there's even a scene where she comes in, her mom's like, oh, you're filthy. And she's like, I know, I know, I should have been born a boy. And I, I don't know, I think that character really steals the show. I think oh, she's, totally. every scene she's in, which is maybe three or four, she's just excellent. But it's, you know, it's nature versus nurture because she's this pretty well-behaved kid for the most yeah. part, besides, I mean, I guess getting dirty. I don't think that's bad. But then there's Vita, who, same mother, raised by the same people, yeah. and she's awful. Yeah. So it makes, I don't know, it makes you question if the evil is inherent or it's if just, it's learned and how that works. I think it's inherent and then probably just, like, worsened by the fact that she is so spoiled, honestly. Like, I do wonder how she would kind of develop if, like, her parents hadn't divorced, if her younger sister had, you know, survived her illness. I do wonder, would we still have this huge, like, villain, or would you, like, I don't know. It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder. There should be just a whole nother movie about that. <laughs> I'd be interested in seeing a version in an alternate reality of this film where Kay doesn't die and she also grows up and remains, I mean, she is inheriting the same amount of money from yeah. her mother, but remains pure. Yeah. And like doesn't I guess pure is a weird word, but like <laughs> remains not spoiled by yeah, it, not you know? An asshole. <laughs> yeah, not an asshole, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it makes you wonder. There's just a lot of like I wish there's been a movie for that. I wish there's a spin-off for Eve Arden's character who is I always love like a wisecracking best friend in a movie in general. So and she's one of the best ones. So she deserves a better call Saul style series. Honestly, she <laughs> deserves it. Because it wasn't who was nominated? I'm trying to think like was I think Eve Arden was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and I also think Anne Blith was. I'm not positive possible this movie did i know it got a lot of academy love back in the day i guess i have it granted i haven't read any of the reviews but i do wonder how like audiences and journalists how they responded to this movie when it came out because i mean we're looking at it from a different angle a lot of different angles like especially like for me so much of the draw is what it historically represents so i do wonder what they thought about it without having like the being able to look at it almost in the review mirror you know like very curious so you were right uh, both Anne Blyth and Eve Arden were Dang. both nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Wow. Who won? Does it say? Uh, <laughs> I'm just I, making you click on all these links. I don't... No, they were just nominated. The only thing that it won was Joan Crawford as Best Actress Classic. in a Leading Role. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Speaking of which, Oscars are coming up soon. we got to do an episode on the Oscars. That's true. When they come out. We can probably complain about what won i hope <laughs> just like every year i hope they don't flub every like mess everything up like the grammys did like the grammys really just dropped the ball so i hope that they don't do that with the academy awards too i mean what else is new that's true they do a lot but the grammys like is especially bad so i hope the oscars will kind of like 
you know, make up for that a little yeah. bit. <laughs> now, if I were going to be somebody who was awarding Oscars for this film, uh-huh. I would definitely give an Oscar to Mr. Max Steiner for Best Original Score because the music in this movie oh, great. is just awe-inspiring. It's like good, good mood music, honestly. This movie, just in general, like the music and the photography and just all of these, like, different textures they just it all comes together so well like stylistically this movie is just like so superior to so much of what was being made yeah i think that's a good place to wrap up (laughs) oh is it yeah let's do some final thoughts final thoughts i think this movie as we've talked about earlier it's dated in a lot of ways but i think it is super important to its era it's super important to the career of joan crawford who i feel like is one of the greatest actresses of all time, I highly recommend checking out, especially the movies she made kind of post-Mildred Pierce. She made a lot of very interesting melodramas. So I think this movie, it's just, it's too much. You just got to see it. <laughs> I think my my final thought would be not every performance in this film is great. Yeah. The ones that are good are really good. So I'd say if you're going to watch this this movie, you would want to watch it just for Joan Crawford. Watch it for Joan. Watch it for Joan <laughs> and... Oh, man, watch it for that set design and the music. There's there some wonderful sets in this movie mm-hmm. and the lighting. So I guess watch it for Joan Crawford and how the thing looks. Also, yeah. And sounds. I'm also going to say, um, I know some people don't like it, but I also recommend possibly even checking out the Feud miniseries, which is about Joan Crawford and Betty Davis's rivalry. That's very interesting. Also, personally, I prefer Joan Crawford way more to Betty Davis. Like, I think Joan Crawford's movies are a lot more interesting than anything Betty Davis ever did. No offense, Betty Davis made some great stuff. She's no Joan. I don't know if you feel any strong feelings about that, but... I have no strong feelings one way or the other right now, and I don't want to offend anybody, so... All right, whatever. (laughs) All right, what are your recommendations for this Very good question. (laughs) My recommendations are really basic. Okay. Uh, first, I'm going to recommend Casablanca. If you want to see more Michael Curtiz. What? People need to gotta get that recommended to them. <laughs> I feel like it's on everybody's list, and they're like, someday. Yeah, that's so, true. They say it in that voice. They, like, maybe tomorrow. Have a little cigar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'd say someday watch Casablanca <laughs> because it's great. And... Max Steiner does the music for it, just like he does for this movie. (laughs) Yeah, just say it's great, and that's perfect. That's all people need to know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I think... I don't know. It's. I think Casablanca is a pretty emotional movie in a, totally. in a much different way than this one. Yeah, it's a lot more convincing. In this this yes. movie is very unconvincing for the most yes. part. It's still entertaining, but Casablanca is more genuine. And then my other recommendation that's more on key and probably mm-hmm. in genre with Mildred Pierce and also came out around the same time, I think it came out the year before, uh-huh. is Double Indemnity, which classic. I just saw for the first time recently. The sets all look the same. Mm. The lighting is very similar, but it's got more of that crime edge to it. Oh, yeah. It's all about pulling off a successful faked suicide. And it's intriguing, and it also features a you know sociopathic woman character. Uh, Barbara kills it. In she that movie. is something else. I love Barbara Stanwyck so she much. She is really she could she's do, really something. She could do anything. I don't know if you've like seen her in like comedies, but I mean she No. Oh my god. Like she's in like she's such a funny actor like in the Lady Eve and Ball of Fire, hilarious, but then can play these sorts of like villainous roles and it's incredible. She's like 
Kristen Wiig or something. If he's like Kristen Wiig or something. That's giving Kristen Wiig oh, also way a too much credit. A lot of credit. Like, Barbara Stanwyck, like, don't even talk about Kristen it. Kristen Wiig was just in that uh, critically acclaimed film, oh, Downsizing. <laughs> we don't stand. No. <laughs> um, for today, I I feel like usually I've been doing two recommendations, but I just had to do three. Oh, because wow. I feel like the women's picture genre, it's just, it's very great. It's very interesting, despite a lot of its contradictions. So... I went with one, It, I think is one of the more undervalued ones. It was definitely made to cash in on Mildred Pierce, but I still think it's a really good movie. It's called Nor Apprentice. It stars Anne Sheridan, who actually was also considered for the role of Mildred Pierce when it came out, but she was way too young. She was like 30, so that was probably a good decision. Anyway, she plays a, like a nightclub singer who gets involved with a married dentist, and the dentist basically... He's convinced that this is going to be, like, a forever sort of love. Whereas I think Nora Prentice, she kind of does, but, like, she would likely just break up with him before things get too bad. But anyway, right when they're kind of about to break up, her husband commits a murder, I think. (laughs) I feel like I'm recounting the plot and I don't remember it. Anyway, there's, like, a murder involved, kind of double indemnity-ish. But it is similar to Mildred Pierce. It is a pretty forward-thinking portrait of a woman that I like a lot. That one's a little bit harder to find, so good luck trying to get your paws on it. I know it took me a while. Another good one, Double Indemnity is obviously Barbara Stanwyck movie, but another really good movie she did was Babyface. It was one of her first leading roles. This one's made in 1933, and she plays a woman who basically sleeps her way to the top of the corporate ladder, and it's lit, and John Waynes is in one of his earliest roles as well as one of her, one of the men that she manipulates. So, gotta love that. Um, and then finally, I picked, I feel like I couldn't talk about melodrama without bringing up Douglas Sirk, who is just, like, the best soap opera director. So I picked his movie Magnificent Obsession, which is about um, a love affair between Rock Hudson and Jane Wyman, but it's made a little bit more interesting because what happens early on in the film is... Rock Hudson is driving a boat and crashes into whatever Jane Wyman's sitting in. And because of that, she becomes blind. And then they fall in love without her knowing that he is the one who caused her blindness. So it's like very, a little bit um, convoluted, but still very entertaining. And I think overrun the ways that Mildred Pierce is. But those are my picks for today. Check (laughs) them out, kids. Do it. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. If you want to hear more of us talking about movies, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Android, and on our website, uwpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter on our personal accounts at Aiden Walkero or at Blake W. Peterson. Or if you want to say the sentence in the correct order, you can find us at the Filmcast on the podcast account. If you want to write to us with a suggestion or just want to share your thoughts, you can reach us at cinemadventurepodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please share it with a friend, get it out on the internet so uh, more people can enjoy it. And if you want to follow along with us, next Monday, what are we talking about? Are we talking about The Great Public Caper? Is that what's next? I have no idea. I I feel like I usually will just ask you rather than look at the schedule, which I feel like defeats the purpose of the schedule. I keep telling myself I'm going to look at the schedule beforehand, and then I try to do the sign-off, and I don't do it. Don't even cut this part out. Let the the people know (laughs) how much work is going into letting them be ahead of it. What is it? It's the Grim Muppet Caper. Really? Finally. Blake's been waiting a long time for this one. I'm so excited. Me too. I love the Muppets. We've teased it a couple times. Teased it. It's coming. The people, this is what they've been wanting. This is is what the people want. This is why subscribed because they wanted a Muppet episode. Yeah, we mentioned seven episodes ago. We want to do an episode on The Great Muppet Caper and they've just been they never headphones on. Like, when's it coming? They've been waiting. Like a Counting waiting down for the Santa. days on the calendar. <laughs> wow. Was, was it because we got into a, a conversation about 
how did they make Muppets ride bikes? In but, the... like, even then, like, why was that brought up? Like, I don't even remember what movie we were even discussing. I <laughs> probably need to just go back in the archive now. It's a mystery. Well, anyway, we folks, <laughs> thanks for listening. We're so happy you could join us. Bye, adios. We'll see you next time. Ciao. <laughs> so what about Fozzie Bear? What do you think of him? He your favorite? Oh, no, Miss Piggy's my favorite by okay. far. I yeah. love Miss Piggy. No, Miss Piggy's good. I, I think I will always be a Kermit guy, though. I love him. Did you know Peruvians have their own type of Chinese food? Or that Vietnamese food is heavily influenced by French cuisine? Have you ever wondered what other cultures' drunk food is like? Explore these topics and more right here on the Soundbite Network. My name is Dee Dee Madigan, and I'm the host of Home Plates, a podcast all about food. Catch up on the first season of Home Plates on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. New episodes air every Wednesday. For more like this and other great shows covering sports, science, relationships, and the arts, visit the Soundbites website, uwpodcast.com. That's uwpodcast.com.